This week is Parshas Pinchas. Pinchas, of course, is the name of the grandson of Aaron, who is the hero at the end of last week's Parsha. Last week's Parsha ended with a uh, in an orgy with the Moabite girls and uh, the Jewish boys, and uh, there was the head of the tribe of Shimon, and he had a very public interaction with a Moabite princess, and Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, the son of Elazar, Aaron's successor, snuck into the tent, and he took a spear, and he uh, and he punctured both of them like a skewer, like a little shish kebab, and he brings them out and shows it to everyone, and he ends the uh, sinning. And this week's Pasha begins where he is receiving his accolades, his plaudits for his actions. Now, before we begin, I want to just remind everyone that if you want to send me an email with a question or a comment or anything like that, the email is rabbiwalbe, W-O-L-B-E, at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. So the Pasha begins here with a discussion of Pinchas's action and what he did. So Hashem tells Moshe, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, he stopped my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them, so I, do, so I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. Therefore, he gets a covenant of peace. Now, this statement, this these two sentences are actually uttered at every bris mila, every circumcision ceremony, we say this first couple of sentences regarding Pinchas. And I, uh, uh, eight years ago, on the Shabbos of Pinchas, my son Yehoshua was having his bris. So when I spoke, I asked the question, why is this appropriate to speak at a circumcision ceremony, at the initiation of a Jewish boy into the Jewish fraternity, into the covenant of Abraham, why are we invoking Pinchas and his act of heroism and his uh, avenging of God? Why is that? Why, Why this particularly the episode that you want to bring up? So there's many answers given to this uh, question. Uh, One, for example, is that Elijah, we're told in the mystical sources, Elijah, the prophet, is actually, he shares the soul. He's a reincarnation of Pinchas. And because Elijah is the Malachah Bris, he's called the angel of the the Bris, of the circumcision, uh, of the pact, of the covenant. Therefore, we invoke, so to speak, his spiritual antecedent in Pinchas. That's one of the answers given, very common answers given. I I wanted to theorize that uh, this episode and this individual and the courage of Pinchas is really one of the lasting lessons that we ought to take and really the child ought to take from the circumcision. When someone is circumcised, when when they fulfill the mitzvah first given to Abraham, essentially the first mitzvah given to Jews, what they're doing is they're joining in something very special. What they're linking themselves to Abraham and to what Abraham began, and they're pledging essentially their commitment to continue the tradition of Abraham of trying to bring about the destiny and the legacy of Abraham to 
bring the world to God, bring God to the world, what we call tikkun olam, fits in the world, the world's broken, the world doesn't see God, and the revealing of the crown, so to speak, on the physical aspect of the circumcision is emblematic of the entire goal of the Jewish nation as began by Abraham to reveal the crown of God in the world. And therefore, this is this first step, this first initial bond of love, of commitment, of dedication, of mission, of purpose of a Jew is when they have, in the first week of their life, the bris milah. And this, the deep relationship that man has with God, that the Jew has with God, that Abraham had with God is symbolized over here. And this is the first step. What do we say? We say, Pinchas, Ben Elazar, Ben Aaron, or Cohen, he was someone who stood up and avenged the vengeance of God. And we tell the child, you are right now joining something really special. There's a deep relationship that a circumcised Jew has with God. Talmud tells us if someone is circumcised, then they're not going to be allowed to go into Gehenim, into hell. And in fact, the Talmud goes further and says that Abraham, he sits at the doorway of hell and any circumcised Jew, he does not allow him to enter. Well, what if there's a Jew who has done so many sins, such a preponderance of sinning that there's no way other than to put him into purgatory, but he still is circumcised, says the Talmud, they take an artificial foreskin, they take a foreskin from a baby that died before they were circumcised, they slap it on to the individual, and then he's allowed to go into Gehenna, into purgatory. What this means is that there's something being symbolized, this deep connection being symbolized by the circumcision that really underscores the relationship that a Jew has with God. But we remind the child, you took the first step. You, now you're joining the Briso Shal Avraham Avinu, the covenant of Abraham. You put your f- toe into the water. You dip your toe in the water. You put your foot in the door. You started. What's the end game? What's the goal? Where should you continue in this relationship with God? What does it look like at the end of the tunnel? Pinchas. Pinchas was someone whose love of God and his connection to God and his bond with God was so complete that here, what does it say? God says about him, he avenged my vengeance. Pinchas aligned his interests with the interests of God. If God wanted to do to avenge, Pinchas manifested himself. They were so connected, so to speak. Pinchas and his relationship with the Almighty was so complete that their interests overlapped. And a child is being told, you are part of this new bond with God, right? This is your first step here. But ultimately, you should try to strive to be like Pinchas. Pinchas was someone, like we mentioned last week, who was given, granted extrajudicial permission to avenge God in this way, in this manner. But 
had Pinchas stopped and queried, is this something I should do or is this something I should not do? He would have been told, don't do it. And why? Because the only person that's allowed to do it is someone who doesn't ask questions. Someone whose love of God is so complete and so impenetrable and so no questions asked, no holds barred, that he doesn't ask questions. That's what Pinchas was, that the relationship that he had fostered with the Almighty was so complete that it was not something that you would even entertain asking questions. You just act. You see God, God's being uh, desecrated here in front of you. You act, you don't think. That's the level of love that we ought to strive uh, to God. And we remind the child uh, right away at the beginning, this is what the end game is. Now, it's also interesting here that we talked about the vengeance of God. Of course, God, you know, God does God have vengeance? What does that even mean? It's, it's, it's theologically a problematic statement. And what does it mean that man has, is in vengeance a bad thing? Don't we say in the same verse that we say to love your fellow as yourself in Leviticus 19, don't take uh, revenge? So how is vengeance here presented as a good thing? So the sources tell us that there's two kinds of vengeance. There's one vengeance referred to by the Messiah Sishon by Lutzato in The Path of the Just as something that's sweeter than honey, the kind of revenge where you're able to get your enemy and get him back in a way that's so satisfying, that's terrible. But there's a different kind of vengeance, a vengeance that is righteous vengeance, a vengeance that the Talmud says in the book of Yoma, Call Talmud Chacham, every Torah scholar, no nachash, that does not avenge like a snake. Eino Talmud Chacham is not a Torah scholar. This doesn't refer to the bad kind of vengeance. This is the good kind of vengeance. The vengeance of not standing and accepting evil idly. This is a vengeance of eradication of evil. This is a vengeance when someone says, I cannot stand and not respond when I see evil. We saw this with Moshe. The first episode we told about Moshe, he sees evil, he immediately responds, and he is not willing to compromise and yield and allow the evil to reign. That is the vengeance of God. The vengeance of God refers where someone is so deeply committed to goodness and to what's right and what's, what's appropriate, what's holy before the eyes of the Almighty, and that person encounters evil, that's the antithesis of that, they don't take it sitting down. They immediately respond, they act upon it, and that indeed is worthy. In fact, the Talmud tells us that it, it, it talks about three separate entities, the Gemara in Brachos. It talks about Das. Das means knowledge, but a very heightened knowledge. It talks about the temple in Jerusalem, the Mishkan. And thirdly, it, ta- it talks about vengeance. And what the Talmud points out is that there's three verses in the Torah that has these three ideas, the idea of knowledge, 
called Das, the heightened knowledge, the idea of the temple, and the idea of vengeance, there's verses where it has the name of God before that word and the name of God after the word. It's like part of a God sandwich, so to speak. It says the name of God, it says that idea, and it says the name of God again. And the Talmud makes an amazing connection here. The Talmud says is that there's this unity of heaven and earth that is found in these three instances. Betzalel, who built the temple, he was able to unite the powers, the entities, the forces, through them God created heaven and earth. And when he built the mission, and we spoke about this throughout the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus, what does the Mishkan represent? What is the temple? What is the idea of having a physical edifice where you have sacrifices and you have this whole connection and all the spiritual stuff in a physical domain? So we explained is that this is a portal to a different world. In our world, it's a physical world. It's a world where God is not present for the most part, unless you make him present. It's a world where your body dominates and your soul is very much in the backseat. And it's the exact opposite of the spiritual world. And thus, these two worlds don't interface. They don't ever meet. They don't intersect upon each other. Well, comes along to the temple and you look at the temple and people are eating steaks and there's fires and there's animals being sacrificed and it looks kind of on a physical plane there's some sort of steakhouse going on over here that's what you would think but what do we say reach nichoch lashem this is a this is a way to worship god well is it physical or is it spiritual the answer is it's it's both it's a touch point of two worlds Similarly, perhaps we could suggest that when someone eradicates evil, they're also doing the same thing. They're saying that the evil that's present in this physical world, I'm going to push it aside and make a place of goodness in this world, to take, so to speak, the heavenly realm and to make the heavenly realm that should operate in the physical realm. And what does the verse say? The Almighty testifies about Pinchas, that Pinchas, he adjudicated God's fury, God's vengeance. If God, so to speak, was operating in this world, the Almighty would do exactly what Pinchas did, but Pinchas did it for God. It's the exact parallel. It's this vengeance of God in the right way where you're going to act as God would act in this world, uh, like the temple and like Das. The Talmud tells us, incidentally, to bring this full circle, that a Torah scholar is literally like a Mishkan or a Mikdash, a temple, or like an altar. What a Torah scholar represents, what we can represent ourselves, yes, we're physical, yes, we're bodies, but we create harmony and unity between these disparate entities through our free choice. We could choose to say we're going to do mitzvos when we engage 
with the physical world. We can uplift the physical world and make what was initially physical, make that spiritual. Just like in the temple, you could have a steak in a restaurant. Great. That's not a mitzvah. That's an act based upon what you would want to do if you were a body. Exclusively. Animals like to eat good food too. However, you go to the temple and you have a steak and you know what? That's a great mitzvah. That's what angels want to do. Well, which one is it? We have the power to unite disparate worlds captured in the temple and as manifest here by Pinchas. Perhaps this is yet another reason why Pinchas is shown as an exemplar, as a paragon, as a model that a child at the age of eight days old maybe is worthwhile of him to, uh, to emulate or to at least uh, impart the lessons and invoke the lessons at that auspicious time. Now, Pinchas is given reward for his action. Uh, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. So Rashi explains that what this means is that when uh, Aaron, his grandfather, is the Kohen, Aaron's the Kohen, and Aaron's sons are the Kohen as well. So Elazar, the son of Aaron, is also a Kohen and Aaron's successor. But initially, it was only Aaron and Aaron's sons and future descendants that would be given the gift and the role of a Kohen. But Aaron's grandsons, who were already alive at the time, namely someone like Pinchas, they would not be a Kohen, they'd be a regular Levite. So in essence, at the time, Pinchas was nothing more than a Levite. That's still pretty impressive, but he wasn't a Kohen. And Rashi explains here is that the, the, the blessing that he got, as it says in verse 13, it shall be for him and for his offspring after him a covenant of eternal priesthood. He was upgraded as a Kohen and his descendants too, and thus he earned that status. Perhaps we could surmise that this dovetails with what we said earlier. Well, what does a Kohen do? A Kohen works in the temple. A Kohen is someone who unites heaven and earth. Pinchas earned that right by himself uniting heaven and earth with his vengeance. Therefore, it's worthy that he unites heaven and earth as a Kohen. Now, the Midianites, they were responsible for this terrible series of events. Therefore, the Almighty tells Moshe, go destroy the Midianites and get rid of them. The Moabites are spared. One reason why Rashi says is because Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, is going to descend from the Moabites, and therefore her merit uh, is going to stand for them and they won't be destroyed. Uh, other, another suggestion brought by Ramban is that the Moabites, they weren't motivated by hatred of the Jewish people, and therefore they weren't smitten as a result. After this whole event, we have a recounting of the Jewish people. Remember, this is already at the end of the 40 years. This is year 39, year 40. And they were counted several times already earlier, But now it is after 40 years, many of the people, most of the men uh, who were present at the beginning of these 40 years are now deceased. It's their children and their grandchildren. And therefore, 
uh, we are counting them again and again. And Rashi always says this, that uh, when, some, when the Almighty counts the Jewish people, it's a sign of love. And therefore, uh, especially after something bad happens to the Jewish people, like what happened in the whole episode uh, leading up to Pinchas' hero- heroism, therefore, it's important to count them yet anew. So uh, the chapter 26 details the counting, and there's an interesting way that these people are counted. We're actually given the names of the families, and if you read it, uh, let's say Hanoch, who's the son of Ruvain, the way his family is labeled is the Hanochi family. So Hanoch becomes Hachanochi. If you look at it the way it is written, there is a Yud the letter Yud added to the end of the name, the letter He added to the beginning of the name. So if you actually know what the letter Yud and the letter He together spell the name of God. And Rashi tells us, why is the Almighty placing his name upon the families of the Jewish people? To give a stamp of approval. Why? Because the nations, they would ashamed the Jewish people. They would embarrass them. And they would tell them, why are you so busy figuring out who is part of which family and who's part of which tribe and how the genealogy of this all works out? That's assuming that the women weren't raped by the Egyptians. Well, if the Egyptians, if they had control, if they were the slave owners of the Jewish men— it's likely that they would attack and rape the Jewish women. And therefore, who's to say that these people are descendants of Reuven and Shimon and these families? Maybe they're just descendants of Egyptians who consorted with the Jewish women. And therefore, the Almighty says, I'm going to place my name. I'm going to put a hey at the beginning, a yud at the end, and I'm going to testify that these are the descendants of their fathers. And these are the sons of the Jews and not of the Egyptians. Therefore, Hanoch, his descendants are the Mishpachas HaChanochi, the head, the beginning, the year, the end. These are indeed descendants of their, uh, of who they are claimed to be. Now, it's interesting here, when it goes to the family of Reuven, it does mention the episode of Korach and his rebellion, because they were part of the family of Reuven, um, Dasam and Aviram. So it reinvokes this story and it says how the sons of Eliav are Dasan and Aviram, and they were the ones who was joined the Korach's rebellion, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, and Korach, and then the fire consumed 250 men. So basically it recaps the story of, of Parsha's Korach, and then it ends, but the sons of Korach did not die. Bnei Korach Lo mesu. So here we're told that the sons of Korach, they didn't die. It doesn't say that they were spared. It says they didn't die. So what happened to the sons of Korach? Now, it's interesting. If you look at the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, there are several chapters of Psalms that are attributed to Bnei Korach, to the sons of Korach. Obviously, if they died, it wouldn't be, uh, it would have to be published posthumously, right? But the verse here says that they didn't die, so they were able to write these 
chapters that eventually were canonized in the Psalms and uh, because they were alive. So what happened to these people? So Rashi says that they initially, the sons of Korach, they were part of the rebellion. However, at the end, they had feelings, they had emotions of repentance in their heart. And therefore, there was a place in Gehenna, in hell, that Korach was swallowed into, that was carved out for them, a very high place in hell, so not so far from our world, that was carved out for them, and that's where they were. But they didn't die like Korach did. How they got out of there is a subject of uh, other debate. Uh, Some uh, theorize that someone prayed and was able to extract them sometime later on. But regardless, this is a very powerful lesson. These are people that had initially joined a terrible mutiny, a terrible rebellion, a, a repudiation of God, of Moshe, of prophecy, a really bad stuff they were doing. And indeed, they were destined to have the same fate as all the other mutineers. But they had a feeling of repentance all the way at the 90th minute, all the way at the end of their lives, and therefore they were spared. They were given a, carved out a place for them in hell and Eventually, they were allowed to be extracted from that. And I think it's just a really powerful lesson how powerful repentance is. Repentance, even when someone is already guilty of a heinous crime, and even if someone already has part of their crime being, the punishment for the crime being meted out, and they're halfway to be swallowed, and they don't even have full repentance, only repentance of the heart, still, it is effective to save them. We're told in the Mishnah to repent one day before we die. We're told elsewhere, Afilu Rasha Kol Yamav. Even if someone is a wicked person all his days, and in his last day he repents, then he's a tzaddik, and we don't invoke the previous sins. A lot of people are, they feel depressed and they feel helpless with the body of misdeeds that they're bringing with them and they're schlepping with them in their lives. And this is the tactic of the Yetzirah. Yetzirah says, you are such a sinner. There's no way getting out of this. This is irrevocable. This, you cannot fix this. And the Mishnah tells us that the, that is indeed a tactic, and our objective is to try to forget sin. We're told, Yafa Torah im it's good to study Torah along with the way of the world. Why? Because toiling in both of them, both in Torah and in Derecheretz, it makes a person forget sin. The Yetzirah does not want us to forget sin. The more we think about it, the more we ruminate over it, and even if we have regret, 
all that is part of the tactics of the Yetzirah to not let us depart from it. If you're regretting on sin, it's still part of you. It's still part of you. It could still operate within you and bring up again another urge to sin, and indeed, it's likely you may capitulate to it. We're our objective is to forget sin as much as possible. Bilam, he tried to reinvoke sin uh, with the episode of the Sota. This it's called a masteriso and a reminder of sin. Those are not good things. We want to forget sin. And if we forget sin, if someone actually forgets the sin they did, that indeed is a sign that their repentance is complete because the sin is not part of them anymore. They brushed it off. And because they brushed it off, well, now they are free of it, and they're cleansed of it, and that's a good thing. So the families of Ruven and Shimon and all the tribes are counted. The census total is 601,730 adult males. It's interesting that it's almost the same, it's the same ballpark as the same, as the numbers of people who were counted 40 years prior. Uh, So basically there was flat population growth over the uh, 40 years. And we know that there were certain plagues that befell the Jewish people. Those are not conditions for population booms when you're traveling from place to place and you're living out of tents and you're facing a lot of tribulations. Those are not conditions where populations usually explode. Uh, and it's I think it's actually remarkable to think about how many people they lost and you had those people who escaped and they started to try to go fight on their own and you had uh, various plagues. Yet, remarkably, they didn't even lose so many. It's almost the same exact number. Now they're about to go into the land of Israel, and in the 50s, verse 52, 53, it talks about now we have a final tally of the people that are going into the land of Israel, and they are going to be, uh, each tribe is going to be part of a lottery to divvy up the land and give the land to its, uh, give various uh, blocks of the land, various sections of the land of Israel to these tribes. And it's interesting here that uh, we we're told, even though we have the Almighty here who could assign which lot shall go to which tribe, still it's done by a lottery to remove any questions about it. Uh, and they, they put names in, in, in a hat and they selected one name of a tribe and another name of a uh, of a place in Israel, and they would match those two up, and that's way no one would have any problems with the system, with the um, with the process through which these parcels of land were uh, appropriated. And finally, it uh, recounts the family uh, families of Le- of the Levites, and then the chapter ends by saying that all the men who were counted in this instance were not counted in the initial instance, with the exception of Kalev and Joshua. If you remember, by the episode of the spies, it was promised that with the exception of Kalev, of, of Caleb, 
and Joshua, the two righteous spies that spoke positively about the land of Israel, all the other adult men are going to die and expire in the wilderness, and only their descendants are going to go into Israel. Now, it's also interesting here. Uh, this is one of the... Uh, it's one of the parshas, we'll see a little bit more about this later, that show the stature that uh, the Torah has for women. There's this myth that the Torah mistreats women. Of course, it's a bunch of baloney. It's not true. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, the the only... The oldest society, the oldest ideology uh, with regards to worrying about the women, making sure that they are treated fairly, of course, is Torah. And what everyone else in the world is still trying to wrap their heads around, we've been there for 3,000 years. But regardless, what does it say here about the, uh, in verse 64? It says, of the men that were counted by Moshe and Aaron, no men are left with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. However, what's implied here is that the men, there's no men left, but there's no, but there maybe are many women that are left. Says Rashi. Aval al but regarding the women, there was no decree that they should die. Because the women, indeed, they love the land. And only the men said, let us return to Egypt. We don't want to go to Israel. But the women, they're the ones who said, let us have a portion of the land. They're the ones who love the land. And this is a, a pattern that we see, which, by the way, would answer another important question. First of all, the notion that women don't have stature in Judaism is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, but also importantly here, we are told mitzvahs. What, what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is an opportunity for someone to change. It's an opportunity of someone who is not perfect to become more perfect, Talmud tells us, mitzvahs were only given to purify us. We're not pure. We can become pure, provided we do the mitzvah. So the more pure someone is already, the fewer mitzvahs they need. Because if a mitzvah is there for a very specific purpose, to purify someone who is impure, well, if someone is already pure, they don't need the mitzvah. And the mitzvah is not given to them. One of the reasons why women have fewer mitzvahs is essentially evident over here. A mitzvah is given to a person because there's something, there's some flaw or some void or some lacking that needs to be remedied. Well, if there's no lacking, the mitzvah would not have been given to them. It's not random that the Almighty says, oh, I'm sure to give mitzvahs here. We're going to dispense mitzvahs because we just want to dispense mitzvahs. No. It's perfectly tailored to address the needs of the recipients of the mitzvahs. And therefore, if a woman is less imperfect, of course she will end up with fewer mitzvahs because she doesn't need as many mitzvahs to reach her perfection. Mitzvahs that we have are there because the Almighty understands us more than we could ever understand ourselves and understands the perfect f- formula that we could follow that will bring us to the destination of perfection. And therefore, if you have more mitzvahs, you know what that means? It means you have a longer journey to get to that destination. Okay, chapter 27, because we talked about divvying up the land, there is a grievance by a group of women Five sisters, the daughters of Tzalavchad, 
and they have a problem because until then, we've been talking about it, that there's this idea of a tribe and the tribe follows someone's father to the son and that's how inheritance works. But these women, they say, wait a minute, our father died and there's no, he doesn't have any, just had daughters. He didn't have any sons. So what happens with the land that was apportioned for him? Can we get it maybe? And that's the question that they ask. And Hashem tells Moshe, yes, they speak properly. And the laws of inheritance uh, are taught here. If a man has a son, that goes to the son. If he doesn't have a son, it goes to the daughter. If there's no daughter, it goes to his brothers. If there's no brother, it goes to his uncles, etc. A whole list of, of uh, a whole order, kind of like they have in England, right? Uh, that there's uh, 500 people who could be teened if uh, the first 499, so to speak, die. Um, so there's a... Uh, there's always going to be an, an a inheritor of a Jew so long as Jews exist because we're all family. We may be very distant family. We're 18th cousins, but we're still family, and therefore we grow out further and further if we can't find someone who has any relatives uh, or close relatives. Now, this is a really a bizarre, a bizarre episode for a few reasons, but most notably is the fact that there's a halacha, halacha, a law of inheritance that's being taught, so that in itself is not unique at all. But what is unique is how this law is brought about. You have women who are complaining and they bring up an argument and Moshe goes to the Almighty and Hashem agrees. And could have very easily said that Moshe was told by God, this, this is the law. So what's the significance of, of, uh, of how it's told? So Rashi tells us that Moshe, he forgot a law. He forgot this law. He wasn't aware. He, he didn't remember this law. Why? So this goes all the way back to the middle of the book of Exodus. Right after the Jewish people got the Torah, Jethro is there and he sees Moshe who's judging day and night. And they come up with a whole system where there's lower courts and there's higher courts and progressively higher, higher until it reaches Moshe. And the verse there says that Moshe announces that the very difficult matters bring to me. What Moshe is hinting there, his, his speech says the Torah is improper. He's, he's showing that I have knowledge that no one else has, and therefore the tough questions bring to me. Now, of course, this is Moshe being judged as he always is on his level. But because Moshe had a certain degree uh, or, or, or he presented, he spoke in a, in a way that wasn't perfectly artful, or perfectly appropriate, therefore, oh, Moshe, you think you know so much laws? I'm going to see a law. I'm, we're going to teach a law that you didn't think of, and we have to have these women uh, who no one would imagine will be able to triumph over Moshe in any way. But uh, to teach Moshe, um, or to teach us really, that uh, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't gloat uh, over our uh, over our Torah greatness. Uh, and in fact, the Mishnah tells us if you study a lot of Torah, al tachzik tovah Don't consider yourself so special. Tilekach sarta. For that is why you were created. Uh, the great Rabbi Noah Weinberg. 
he used to say that if someone's a great Torah scholar, they may feel very proud of themselves. But if that was why they were created, how could they have any pride? Are you prideful that you digest? Does anyone wear a, a T-shirt that says, look at me, I could take food and break it down to its minerals and vitamins and, and do it all magically? Does anyone say that? Even though that's, well, it's a pretty remarkable skill, right? If I describe that skill to someone, to an alien, I could take food and draw out the nutrients with uh, the bile in my gut and pull out all the things that I need and take all the waste and the refuse and send that shipping that's a pretty remarkable skill, but no one's proud of it. And the reason why no one's proud of it is because, well, that's how they were made. Well, if you were made to study Torah, you're just doing what your job is. You shouldn't have any degree of pride because of it. Okay, so there's another um, verse here in verse 15 uh, where Moshe is going to go up on a mountain and see the land of Israel. Remember, the Jewish people right now are in the plains of Moab. They're on the banks, the eastern banks of the Jordan River. There are stones throw out of Israel. And Hashem tells Moshe, go climb up a mountain so you can get a good view of the land. You see it, but you're not going to end it, enter it because of the sin of hitting the rock. So there's a few important things here. First of all, Rashi says that once Moshe was able to climb and see the land, he was very excited because he thought, well, if I could see the land, then maybe the decree that I'm not allowed to go into Israel, maybe that was absolved. Maybe I can finally, yes, enter the land of Israel. And the Almighty said to him, no, my decree still stands. And... So Moshe climbs and he go and he um, sees the land and finally he asks for a successor. So why did Moshe want to go so much into the land of Israel? We see this is going to be a theme that's going to be revisited again, uh, most notably in Vashanan, where Moshe talks about all the prayers that he tried to do to try to uh, dissuade God from disallowing him into Israel. So the sources talk about that Moshe wanted to go to Israel to do mitzvot in Israel. He wanted to bring the Jews. He didn't want to just go to, to eat the luscious fruits. He wanted to go because he wanted to fulfill the mitzvot in the land of Israel. But the sources tell us, had Moshe brought the Jewish people into Israel, had Moshe conquered the land, had Moshe built the temple, it would never be destroyed. The actions that Moshe did the activities that Moshe brought us towards, we never lose. So we can't lose Torah anymore because Moshe gave us Torah. And therefore, the Torah they got from, we got from Moshe, because Moshe was such, a, was such an angel, a veritable angel, we'll never lose it. However, Israel, we got with Joshua. Joshua was great, of course, but he's not Moshe. And therefore, that acquiring of Israel is subject to change. We could still lose that. Now, it's really interesting that... The Talmud tells us, Avira de'ara machim, which means the avira, which means the atmosphere, the air of the land makes someone wise. Just going to Israel and taking a lungful of oxygen makes you smarter. 
That's what the Talmud tells us in Baba Basra, page one hundred and ninety and uh, and fifty eight b. So what does this mean that the heir of Israel made someone wise? What it means is is that Moshe, while he didn't get to tread upon the land of Israel, he was able to see it. He was able to see the air, the atmosphere of Israel. And therefore, Moshe, it was almost as if he captured the airspace of Israel. And therefore, the airspace of Israel, that is equivalent as if Moshe did get that. Well, therefore, the air of Israel, that has the status as if Moshe gave that to us, and it will make someone wise. Uh, Moshe, unfortunately, did not go into the land of Israel. Therefore, the land of Israel doesn't have the same status, and therefore, we could still lose it. Now, it's also important here when the Almighty reminds Moshe of the sin that precluded from him to go in the land of Israel. Why is it so important to revisit that? And Rashi actually spins this to the positive. The fact that the Torah says, this is Moshe's sin. It intimates this to the exclusion of anything else. If this is the sin of Moshe, Nothing else is. So ironically, what may have looked to us like a certain repudiation, not repudiation, a certain criticism of Moshe is ironically telling us Moshe's greatness. This was his sin, this, only this, none else, and that's why he can't go into the land of Israel. So Moshe is, after all these events, he asks God for a successor. And it's important to, to look at the words that he uses to, to, uh, to frame what he's looking for. May Hashem, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly. What does it mean to say Hashem Elokei Haruchos? God is the God of all the spirits. It's such a really strange way to describe God when you're looking for a successor. Why specifically did Moshe use this terminology? Says Rashi. He said to God, it is well known before you, you're the God of all the spirits. Every individual is different and the Almighty knows each one of them. Find me a leader for them that is able to absorb each and every one of them as per their own unique personality. What is a leader? A leader is someone who's able to bear the burden of the unique eccentricities of each one of their constituents. That is a leader. And the word that is used here, sovel, means to suffer. Incidentally, the word sovel or savlanut means patience. When we talk about patience, patience doesn't mean waiting out the suffering, it means absorbing it, absorbing the suffering. A great leader is someone who's able to absorb the suffering of a myriad of different temperaments, of different individuals, of different personalities of his subjects. That's what a leader means. Importantly, we think of a leader as someone who has an ideal, uh, someone who has a doctrine, Right? A great leader, everyone wants it to be their the Truman Doctrine or the, uh, um, I don't know, if, are there any other doctrines? The Marshall Plan, 
uh, people want to say like, this is the way I do it and everyone can fit into my box. Judaism, a leader is someone who's very pliable, someone who's very malleable, someone who reconfigures himself or herself to acclimate themselves to the needs, the individual unique characteristics of all their subjects. It's kind of the, almost the exact opposite of what we typically would think. Now, Moshe, Rashi tells us, he really wants, he has, he has an idea of who he wants as a successor. And he wants his sons. Moshe is, he has two sons. And he sees that everyone's talking about inheritance. And we said that the, the father is going to give it to his sons. And if there's no sons, then the daughters. But if there is sons, get the sons get it. So he says, well, everyone's working and thinking about how they're going to have their legacy and they're going to give over their, their inheritance. They're going to bequeath that to their sons. Well, I want to bequeath my stature to my sons. And God tells him, no, your sons are not going to have your greatness. Instead, it's going to be Joshua. Why Joshua? So it gives a few reasons. First of all, it says, because Joshua never stopped studying Torah. He never stopped studying Torah. And it gives a list, and the Midrash tells us other reasons as well. We'll get to it in a second. So the big question is here, okay, first of all, Moshe, is he acting out of nepotism? Is he just saying, I want my sons to take over for me because that's just my desire as a loving father? Of course not. Moshe is someone who was interested in the benefit of the Jewish people. And indeed, he says, give me a leader that is able to absorb the individual uniqueness of every person. But what Moshe is actually saying is that, well, my sons are qualified. And says God, yes, they are qualified. But you know who's more qualified? Joshua. Why? So the Midrash tells us, Rashi says he never stopped learning. The Midrash says is that when, the, when uh, Joshua was the first in the door and out and the last out to leave the house of scholarship, and also that he would arrange the benches and the tables, and he would organize, he would do like the custodial work that no one else wanted to do. He would take the books and put them back on the shelf. He would arrange the benches and the chairs and all that. And of course, the questions are obvious, like, is that really what you need to be a leader, to be someone who is uh, efficient in organizing uh, the, the layout, the structure of the, of the house of scholarship? It seems, uh, it seems kind of bizarre that this would be what uh, is required. So there's a few answers to this question. First of all, a leader is someone who has to be selfless. For someone to be able to absorb each individual as per their own needs and unique characteristics, they themselves have to mitigate, minimize, and shrink their own personality, their own individuality. They have to become more selfless, less selfish. The more selfish you are, the less you're able to accommodate others. And therefore, if someone is totally committed to the task at hand, He's even willing to do things that are below his dignity. Think about it. Joshua, he's the heir apparent or the successor or Moshe's greatest student. And he's the one who's organizing the tables and the chairs and the bookshelves and putting the books away. That, that's a demeaning job. That's for the custodian. Says Joshua, I don't care. If a job needs to get done, I'll do it. That's someone who's selfless. Someone who's selfless to such a degree is worthy of being the leader. 
Another answer given is that uh, the very next section after this, after God tells Moshe that Joshua is going to be your heir, we learn about uh, sacrifices. And there's a whole, uh, a whole chapter full of verses, chapter 28 and 29, till the end of the Parsha, essentially, it talks about various sacrifices. But the first sacrifice that it mentions is the daily sacrifice, the carbon tummy. Every day, every morning, every afternoon, there is a mitzvah to bring a sacrifice. And the Talmud tells us that there's one verse in the Torah that captures, that encapsulates, that encompasses the rest of the Torah. Which verse is that? Do the first sacrifice in the morning, second sacrifice in the afternoon. And what this means is that what is the characteristic that really brings out greatness? It's the consistency. Day in, day out. Morning, afternoon, evening. Morning, afternoon, evening. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Friday, Shabbos. Shabbos, Shabbos. Holidays. It is living a growing life day after day. When it says that Joshua, he arrived early. He left late. He didn't say, oh, I need to have something scintillating or exciting for me to get involved, even clearing up the tables and putting away the benches and organizing, even those things that were exciting. Well, that shows that he was the paragon of consistency, and that indeed is what made his greatness outshine the greatness of others. So the Parsha ends with a very long list of sacrifices, daily sacrifices, uh, Shabbos sacrifices on the holidays, uh, first the holiday of Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month, Pesach sacrifices, Shavuot Each one of these sections, by the way, is read during this given holiday. You read uh, during the Musaf prayer. Musaf is a prayer. We know all prayers, they correspond to sacrifices. And therefore, the, there's three daily sacrifices because there's two daily Sorry, the three day daily prayers corresponding to the three daily sacrifices, the first two and then the burning. And the, on holidays, we add an additional prayer corresponding to the additional sacrifices that are brought on those holidays. Well, where, where do you learn about those sacrifices? Over here. And in fact, in, in the Musaf prayers and all the holidays, we actually quote the verse uh, of uh, this which parsha uh, corresponding to that given holiday. So, and there's an interesting one here. That's a little bit different than, than all others, and that's uh, Sukkis. Because Sukkis, each day of the holiday is a different amount, a different set of sacrifices. So, for example, on day one, you bring 13 young bulls as sacrifices. On day two is only 12. On day three is 11. On day four is 10. Obviously, you're decreasing as you progress day after day. And Rashi, of course, asked the question, why are we decreasing day in and day out? And the answer is, says Rashi, it teaches us derech it teaches us how to, how to behave properly. Why? If you have a guest in your home and he's staying for a while, well, the first day you give him a big lavish feast in your dining room and you pull out the best china, and the final next day, you'd, you'd give them a little bit of a less, uh, a less lavish and robust meal. And finally, he's eating like everyone else, vegetables and crackers and hummus, as Rashi says. And therefore, as the holiday progresses, we have less and less of uh, sacrifices. And of course, this doesn't 
this doesn't immediately make sense. Why, why are we diminishing day after day? It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem appropriate. So my great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grzynski, he used to say that the Torah here is teaching us how to have what's called Derech Rashi says, the way of the world, how to behave. If you have a guest comes to your house, they don't feel comfortable. It's not their house. They're at a place. Uh, they're strangers. Maybe they're judging them. What Do they like me? Do they? Do, do, am I acting appropriately? What if I don't know how to behave? What if, they, what if we have different customs? So the first couple of days, it's sort of sterile, and you want to treat them really well. And so you make out, you pull out uh, a really fancy food, and you go to the fancy table. It's 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 really nice, and but it's important to make them feel comfortable and to make them feel homey. Your job as a host is to make closeness between you and your guest. To make him feel homey, as he's saying Yiddish, make him feel Hamish. Well, how do you do that? You have to try to find a way that they feel comfortable to help clear off the table. You know what? Because like anyone else, if you're part of the family, you can clear off the table and you can sweep the floor. That's fine. If you have a guest, the first time they show up, they'll never sweep the floor. Someone else's house, I'm not touching stuff. But if you get comfortable, you become a member of the household, then that's even a deeper feeling. While, yes, if you remember the household, sometimes you're going to be stiffed and you're going to be left with uh, leftovers or you're going to have to eat uh, some crackers and hummus or peanut butter sandwiches. Sure, but that is a sign, in fact, of closeness, not of distance. Finally, the parsha ends and Moshe tells the Jewish people all the uh, sacrifices and... Uh, and uh, Moshe said to the children of Israel, according to everything Hashem had commanded, Moshe and the Parsha ends. And before we conclude, I want to remind everyone, uh, please email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Also, uh, there's many other podcasts that I have. I have a Jewish history podcast. Uh, We just uploaded episode 34, and there's episode 35 and 36 on the queue. Um, if you're interested in Jewish history, check that out. Uh, links are always in the description. Uh, Jewish philosophy podcast on areas of Jewish learning and Jewish living called This Jewish Life uh, as well. Link in the description. A fourth podcast called Torah 101, which is an intellectual's introduction to Torah. All the questions uh, that someone who is a deep or interested in a deep analysis of Torah, oral Torah, veracity of Torah, how oral Torah, written Torah, how do they uh, interact and relate to each other. Check that out. And of course, do me a favor, go to iTunes, subscribe if you have not yet done that. And as well, leave us a rating and review. It really helps our uh, position in the iTunes. And we really appreciate you listening. And hope you have a great week and look forward to next time. Bye-bye.